looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Sean. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get us going week after week after week. Everybody, welcome to episode 32 of the Jeff Dwoskin Show. Welcome. I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin, and it's great to have you here. Oh, week after week, you keep coming back. We keep doing it. And this episode is amazing. It's shaken, not stirred. <laughs> That's right. Why? Because I have author Stephen J. Rubin with me, author of the acclaimed James Bond movie encyclopedia. He is one of the world's renowned experts on James Bond in this whole episode is Bond, James Bond. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. We're going to get to that in just a bit. But first, I want to remind everyone to go to jeffisfunny.com, the show's website. Sign up for the mailing list so I can send you emails. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Jeff Dwoskin Show wherever you listen to podcasts. It's really important. So cool when you subscribe because then you get the notice right when the new episodes come out. And I want you to be on the cutting edge of The Jeff Dwoskin Show. So two things, mailing list, subscribe, and then tell all your your friends. And you know what your friends are probably already doing? They're probably already signed up to watch the live Jeff Dewaskin show every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. Jeff Dewaskin goes live for Crossing the Streams. That's an amazing group of folks that I've brought together. We talk about amazing TV binge-watching opportunities, things that you should start watching right away. Right away. Episode 3, it's this Wednesday. We've got two more. You can find them on the YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search The Jeff Duoskin Show on YouTube and subscribe. And they're all there, episodes one and two. It's amazing. You're going to love it. And we got another great show for you this Wednesday. So sign up for Jeff Duoskin Live, Crossing the Streams. We're also part of the Scene Snobs channel. You can also find The Jeff Duoskin Show on the we Be Geeks Network. That's pretty cool. There's so many places I am. Ah, I'm everywhere. But just to recap real quick for you, the Jeff Duoskin Show, the podcast you're listening to right now, is a humorous pop culture experience, social trends. I talk to comedians. I talk to actors, authors, all this great stuff. I talk to social media experts. Bring it all to you here in one amazing show. Jeff Duoskin Crossing the Streams is an amazing live show that talks about great stuff you should be watching and binging on your TV via all your paid subscription places. So those are two of the great entertainment options I'm bringing you now. How exciting is that? So exciting. You know what else is exciting? It's time for the social media tip. That's right. This is the part of the show where I share a little social wisdom with you. Social media wisdom, that is. So here's the one for today. If you have the Snapchat app on your phone and you have the Twitter app, and in the past, maybe you took screenshots of your tweets and posted them on your Snapchat. No more. Twitter now has a direct integration with Snapchat. So if you're logged into your Snapchat app, and you go to your Twitter, and you click the share options, one of them is going to be Snapchat. That brings the tweet right into Snapchat, and then you have to like shoot a background or have a background ready. I just shot a photo of uh, my black couch, so it was just a black background against the tweet. But it's the tweet, and then there's a link so they can go from Snapchat, where they see the tweet, and click on it, and go directly to your tweet. And that way, it kind of works a little like fleets do, when you fleet a tweet, you can click on the tweet. Now you can do that with 
Snapchat as well. Pretty cool. So check that out. It's pretty nice. And they just rolled it out. And that's the social media tip. All right. We got the interview coming up real soon with Stephen J. Rubin. We're going deep into James Bond. And after the interviews, special hashtag roundup, hashtag surprise for you. Well, I'll tell you what. It's not a surprise. It's going to be bad James Bond pickup lines. Hilarious stuff. I'm going to read off a bunch of those tweets after the interview. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, download the hashtag Roundup app. Get the app, play along, and one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of the Jeff Jawaskin Show. In the meantime, let's talk about the sponsor. That's right. It's time for the sponsor. It's how we pay the bills and keep the lights on around here. Today's sponsor is Omega Seamaster Professional Watches. That's right. Omega Seamaster Professional Watches. The perfect watch if you need to know the minutes, the seconds, the time, the day, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, and if you're ever stuck on a train, it also comes with a handy laser. That's right, a handy laser. How many times have you been stuck somewhere and all you needed was a laser to get out? Well, now you can with the Omega Seamaster Professional Watch. Now with minutes, seconds, and a laser. Perfect for the guy on the go. Or gal. Now available in a large face and small face for those who love style and also need a laser. All right. Well, that sounds amazing. I have loved my Omega Seamaster Professional Watch for years, so I'm excited they're finally a sponsor. I've been calling and calling them. Definitely check one out. They're available pretty much everywhere. Thank you for supporting the sponsors week after week. You supporting the sponsors helps them support us, and that's how we keep the lights on. All right, everyone, grab your martini, sit back, get ready for James Bond A to Z with James Bond expert Stephen J. Rubin. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with producer and author Stephen J. Rubin, who's written many books, many books, but we're going to focus today on the very super cool, the James Bond movie encyclopedia, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is literally A to Z. Every single thing you would ever want to know about the entire James Bond series, including some really super awesome photos and all that kind of stuff available at Amazon. But we're going to go deep. We got Mr. Rubin here, and he is a Bond, James Bond expert. And we're going in. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate being here. Uh, hello, everyone. It was funny when I was like trying to think about this conversation and like, how do you, how do you cover so much? You have every actor, you have every movie, you've got gadgets, you've got the, the Bond women, you've got the Bond villains. There's like so many threads we can pull. We could talk for probably 100 million hours, but we're not going to everyone who just went, oh, wait a minute, I don't have 100 million hours. No, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna, we're gonna hone it all down. We're going to give you a mini James Bond encyclopedia. Okay, diving into the encyclopedia, topic one. Who do you think are the most iconic of the James Bond Women and they, though they can be the, the 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 women or like even the villains because a lot of them the, the villains were pretty stand out too. There were women uh, who crossed over. Interestingly, I do a Facebook post called the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia presents this day in James Bond history, and today we're wishing happy birthday to Fa Famke Johnson, who's a Dutch actress who played Xenia on a top. Uh, she's the lead lady in GoldenEye, the first Pierce Brosnan. And she's a villain. I mean, she's an insatiably murderous villain 
who's sexy as all get out. And that's kind of a trope with the Bond women. Uh, the villainous ones are, are very sexy. I'll tell you, um, the James Bond novels by Ian Fleming really uh, affected me when I was a kid. My dad would go on business trips and he would bring home Westerns. And for some reason, I had no interest in reading about Westerns. I watched Westerns. I was probably 10 or 11. I watched all the classic Westerns of the day. But one day he dropped Goldfinger on my desk, said, you might like this. Now, I'm 11 years old. My dad drops a picture with a, a nude uh, lady on the cover. And I'm looking at it. And, and she was covered up. It was a very PG cover. But still, it's a nude lady dressed in gold, all in gold. And it had a powerful impact on me, as did a lot of the James Bond women when I first started going to the movies. I mean, as an 11 or 12-year-old, um, the first James Bond movie I saw was Goldfinger, that Christmas of 1964, which we can today going to see a new Star Wars movie or Avengers. It's a big event. And I had not seen the first two James Bond movies, Dr. No and From Russia With Love, which were released in the United States with a lot less fanfare. In fact, um, I remember my mom going to see uh, From Russia With Love, and she didn't understand anything about it and couldn't relate much to it. I later saw it on a double feature with Dr. No after the release of Goldfinger, and it was a big phenomenon in those days. I mean, the Bond movies were just, before there were tent poles, there were James Bond movies. You know, you know how they use that, that meme today for big epic science fiction and superhero movies there? their studio tentpoles, because that's pretty much all the studios are releasing. Well, the Bond movies kind of invented that, you know, long before Jaws, because Jaws was the first big summer blockbuster. But Goldfinger was so successful that the New York theaters at that time stayed open 24 hours a day to accommodate the crowds. And to this day, let's see, it's 64. So it's 56 years later. I still say that Goldfinger is the best James Bond movie. They haven't topped it since. Uh, all those wonderful moments. In fact, the, one of the key characters he meets on the airplane, Pussy Galore, I, I, I'll never forget the moment in the theater when I, uh, he looks up from his, he's been uh, kind of drugged and Bond looks up at the girl and says, who are you? And she, and Honor Blackman, the wonderful British actor says, my name is Pussy Galore. And he says, I must be dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> That was the biggest laugh in the series. I mean, I'll tell you, doing the behind-the-scenes research for the James Bond movie encyclopedia, I discovered that Richard Maybaum, who was the writer of Goldfinger, was all set to change the name if the British censors had thrown that name out. Because this is 1964. The 60s in England were a little more progressive, perhaps, than other places. And um, instead of changing her name to Kitty Galore, he came up with a ruse with the PR guy who ran Eon Productions, which produced the James Bond movies. And Honor Blackman was escorted to a royal benefit by the prince, Prince Philip at that time. And he gave an exclusive um, photographic break to a London newspaper if they would print the caption, Pussy and the Prince. So they published that caption. I mean, a royal with pussy galore and nobody squawked. So it emboldened the producers to go ahead with pussy galore. So there you go. These days, most of the news broadcasts and shows can't even say Shit's Creek. <laughs> the Bond movies have changed quite a bit. I, 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 will, I can say that, but the women are still striking. I, I think that there's no question. Well, I shouldn't say they're a little more PC because James Bond movies as a rule are 
PC. They're PG films, PG-13, as we say today, because they've never alienated the family audience. I mean, even all these years later, you can pretty be safe to take your kids to see the Bond movies and your grandparents. I mean, it's a multi-generational experience. No bare bosoms, no F-bombs. They've stayed away from those kinds of things that would alienate the family audience. And although it's not exactly a Disney movie, Bond movies stay within their parameters. The Bond series has to be the longest running series of any movie series ever, yes? Uh, the 25th will be released in April, if we're lucky, depending on COVID. There are also two orphan Bond movies. Uh, there was a spoof of Casino Royale released in 1967 with Woody Allen, David Niven, and Peter Sellers. And then in 1983, the same year that the official Bond movie, Octopussy, came out, they did a remake of Thunderball called Never Say Never Again, which brought back Sean Connery for his last outing as James Bond. Is it considered an official James Bond movie? No, although it is now owned by United Artists because they purchased it from Jack Schwartzman's estate. Jack Schwartzman was the original producer. He was married to the actress Talia Shire, you know, played the Rocky's uh, wife in the Rocky movies and the sister in uh, the Godfather movies. Uh, I got to know Schwartzman very well. What happened was when Ian Fleming was still writing his books, he met a producer named Kevin McClory. And McClory didn't like any of the novels. He said, these aren't going to make good film projects. So he got together with Fleming and a writer named Jack Whittingham. And they came up with a story, a big wide-ranging world alarm story called Latitude 78 West. McClory had worked with Mike Todd on around the world in 80 days. So he liked the idea of doing a globe-trotting Bond movie. So uh, they couldn't sell it, though. At this time in the late 50s, no actor would take on a seven-year role and no studio would take on the project unless they had an actor for seven years. So the project fell apart and Ian Fleming, the author, ended up taking the materials and writing a novel called Thunderball. But he didn't credit either Whittingham or McClory. And a huge lawsuit was filed in the London High Court. And over a two-year period, Fleming lost the film rights to Thunderball. So McClory uh, went into the marketplace and soon discovered that he couldn't make his movie because Sean Connery had already established himself as Bond. So he made a deal with Broccoli and Saltzman, the two producers, and they made Thunderball together in 1965 with the codicil that uh, he could not do any more Bond movies for 10 years. McClory claimed that there were 10 or 11 Bond movies he could have done from the original materials he developed with Fleming. So 10 years later, he announced James Bond of the Secret Service. But by then, the Bond series that was just had gone on for 20 years, they weren't about to, to let a guy get away with this. So a court battle, another court battle lasted years until 1982, when this gentleman, Jack Schwartzman, he got together with McClory and realized that he could make a new version of Thunderball. And that's how we got Never Say Never Again, which was released by Warner Brothers. So it's not an official Bond movie, but it is now part of the whole thing because they've purchased it. Got it, got it, got it. So of the seven Sean Connery films, six are canon, if you will, James Bond. And then the seventh, while finally found its home, is no longer. And then that was named Never Say Never Again as sort of a throwback to Sean Connery saying that he would never play James Bond again. I think it was uh, Micheline Connery, his wife, who claimed that, that this would be a good title because you're always saying never again. It's actually not a bad movie. I mean, I it's not one of my favorites. Uh, Ir Irwin Kirsch, Irvin Kirshner, who directed it, who had 
recently done the second Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, which came in with a lot of fanfare. But I later discovered, because I did the commentary tracks on the DVD release, I discovered by interviewing him that he did not like to direct action. So here you have a non-action director directing a Bond movie, and hence, Never Say Never Again has very little action in it. So that's not a good thing. Got it. And of course, uh, Sean Connery, most consider him the best Bond ever. Just recently passed away, rest in peace to Sean. I think there's two things that make a, a favorite Bond, which I think also falls into the same category as which Godfather movie you like the best. And it depends which one you saw first. I Mine was Roger Moore. He wasn't necessarily my favorite, but he was he was who James Bond was to me because that's who was James Bond when I started going to see James Bond movies. I always appreciated Sean Connery, and I think he's awesome. I think Sean Connery does say Bond, James Bond, better than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think, you know, helps, you know, with, with that mythos. But do you have a favorite or do you... agree with you 100%. You, uh, you embrace the Bond you grew up with. The first James Bond movie, as I said, I saw was Goldfinger. So uh, Connery was my Bond. And for me, he just blew out all the stops. He was just charismatic. He was, uh, he was good with his fists. Uh, when he hit somebody, they stayed down. The ladies loved him. Guys loved him. I mean, he kind of was... I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Jeff. I don't think they make actors like Sean Connery anymore. This kind of an actor with this huge charisma. He came up in the early 60s about the same era as Clint Eastwood and Steve McQueen. So this was an era where they were introducing new action stars. And they had kind of a, a tough guy side to them. They weren't your classic hero types. They were more like anti-heroes. And uh, Connery as Bond is supposed to be a real uh, tough guy, not a guy you want to cross. And there's a scene in Dr. No, which they did not repeat later on in the series. He's waiting for the bad guy in uh, a cottage in Jamaica. And the guy shows up and pumps like eight shots from his Smith & Wesson into what he thinks is James Bond in bed with this girl, but Bond is sitting behind with them and, and sitting behind him and then switches on the light and disarms him. The guy doesn't realize he used all of his ammunition, so he picks up his gun and tries to shoot Bond, and of course it's empty, and then Bond says, that's a Smith & Wesson, and you've had your six. And he shoots him in cold blood right there and puts another shot in his back to, to add to the misery. And, you know, that's pretty cold-blooded, but J James Bond was just about to be murdered, so he wasn't about to take a prisoner. So that for 1963 was pretty racy, and they didn't really repeat it much later on, but Bond is supposed to be a, a magnificent bastard, and Connery came off like that. He had the tough guy truck driver look, but thanks to Terrence Young, the director of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball, he also gave him kind of a classy look as well. I did look up IMDb has the, um, they list the worst Bond movies. And the only Sean Connery one in, in the mix is Never Say Never Again. And again, that's based out of a 10 rating. So it got like a 6.2 or something. That's kind of in line with what you were saying. It wasn't really up to snuff with, with the other ones. But I think the other, all the other ones are just considered iconic. Diamonds Are Forever was the first time they brought Connery back. Because Connery, after You Only Live Twice, he leaves. He's tired of the Bond schedules. He's tired of the uh, fishbowl. So they get George Lazenby for Bond number six, which was Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which has all, always been disparaged as that one-trick pony George Lazenby. But George Lazenby was a, a model who had never acted before in his life. 
And Peter Hunt, the director who had edited the first four James Bond movies, he got a performance out of him. And I thought that Lazenby had natural ability as Bond, but through a series of events, he was given bad advice. So he walked. And then uh, David Picker, who was an executive with United Artists, he convinced Connery to come back for Diamonds Are Forever if he backed a couple of Connery's favorite pictures and also gave some money to the Scottish Relief Fund. So, But Connery in 71, a little overweight. He doesn't look as felt, you know. And the comic side of Bond had come in because they brought in Tom Mankiewicz as the writer. And Mankiewicz was known as more for his wit. And he would later write Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun for Roger, which probably you saw early on when you started to see those Roger Moore Bonds. And just to correct myself from my statement earlier, and to be right in line with you, just to prove what a James Bond expert you are, Diamonds Are Forever actually is listed in the top 10. Um, worse. So it is in the in the bottom 10 of the of the James Bond movies. So kudos to you, sir. Kudos. So the David Niven turn as James Bond, I guess I didn't realize, is is a parody with Woody Allen, as you mentioned earlier. Not to flash forward to Daniel Craig, but when they did Casino Royale, they is that the same movie or a remake, or they just use the same name? Well, the original problem Ian Fleming's first novel was Casino Royale. Now, interestingly, the first producer to ever take a look at that book and actually option it was an as it was an actor named Gregory Ratoff. Gregory Ratoff was a Fox contract player. He was in an uh, uh, airport looking for a paperback to read. Picked up Casino Royale, loved the book, got the rights, brought it over to Fox in the fifties. This is long before Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman got the rights to the series, and. It was going to be developed at Fox as a vehicle for Susan Hayward to play a female agent. So this was way off the track of what the Bond movie was going to be. But uh, that never happened, thank God. And then um, Ratoff's rights were acquired by a mega agent of the 60s named Charles K. Feldman. But like McClory, he couldn't get anything going because the main Bond series was already going. So he decided to do a giant spoof of the Bond movies. And that's what the Casino Royale that came out in 67 was. That was just a spoof with Woody Allen playing James Bond's nephew, Jimmy Bond, and David Niven played Sir James Bond, and Peter Sellers played the phony James Bond. It was It's just a goofy movie. So that was kind of dismissed. So when they decided to reboot the series with Daniel Craig, they went back and they finally did Casino Royale the way it should have been done. And I have to say... Even so, even though I say Goldfinger is my favorite James Bond movie, I think Casino Royale is right up there, right parallel to number one. I think it's it's a terrific launching part for for Daniel Craig, and he's been terrific in his roles. Love him, love him. So let me let me ask you a question. So they're doing Casino Royale, which would you say Get, Get Smart is a parody of James Bond as well, right? And that was like sixty five to seventy. So that was actually. So did this come out? Did Casino Royale with Woody Allen and David Niven come out in the middle of Don Adams and such Get Smart, the Mel Brooks film or TV show? In fact, uh, it hurt the main Bond series because um, it was released before You Only Live Twice that year. And uh, the grosses for You Only Live Twice did not equal those for the previous film, Thunderball. So Cubby Broccoli told me, that uh, it was terrible because he he felt that a lot of people thought they produced 
the goofy Woody Allen Bond movie, and it obviously wasn't them. Cool. All right, so then we move into Roger Moore. Roger, late Roger Moore, I think would have been. <laughs> Roger Moore was actually thought of for Bond back in the 60s pre-Connery, but they thought he was too pretty. He didn't have that kind of, uh, the as Broccoli and Saltzman say it, they wanted tough guy with his fists kind of patterned on characters out of a Mickey Spillane or Mike Hammer novel. So he didn't quite fit that at that time. But by 1973, having done Connery and Lazenby, they felt they were ready for Roger. And although his movies were a little light in terms of the comedy spirit, because they reflected what Roger would bring to the series of a very classy, good-looking British you know, upper-crust agent, uh, they were huge successes, particularly with the third Roger Moore film, The Spy Who Loved Me, that summer of 1977. That was the summer of Star Wars, and Bond shone very bright that year, did very well. It was a big international hit, and it starts the series on a trek toward big international grosses. The next film, Moonraker, was even bigger, and then you have For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill. These are all big successes for the uh, for the series. You know, those who disparage Roger's films for being too lighthearted, I always point them and say that, that they, they got a new generation of Bond fans like yourself excited about the role because they were very entertaining pictures. They were easy to market and they crossed the, the, the waters. They did as well in Bangkok as they did in Germany or Boston. And I got to say, it's, it, it produced some of the best James Bond songs. That's that's another one. I don't think I listed that earlier. The James Bond the, uh, songs, are, those, those are iconic too. I mean, Live and Let Die, seeing Paul McCartney do that in concert is was th- the best. For Your Eyes Only was great. That was Sheena Easton, I believe. And then there was View to a Kill was Duran Duran. <laughs> that was the only song that reached number one. I have to give it to the producers, particularly the the daughter of Cubby Broccoli, Barbara Broccoli, and her stepbrother, Michael Wilson. They've really paid attention to pop hits and who's the hot, hot singer at the time. Like right now, we're contemplating seeing the new James Bond movie, which will be the last Daniel Craig. And they got Billie Eilish to be the singer. And her song has gotten a lot of positives. I heard that song. That was good. I was. I, I got to say one of my... Um, I can't remember specifically uh, the Sam Smith one, though I think it won won the Oscar. But Skyfall, I'll take Skyfall. Over there. What is it? And then the Skyfall. I mean Adele. I mean it's like, <laughs> I got, I, like to me that's just like amazing. They do run the gamut. I mean you got the very brassy Shirley Bassey singing Goldfinger. You've got uh, Golden Throated Tom Jones singing, singing Thunderball. You've got Nancy Sinatra singing You Only Live Twice. You got Bassey again singing Diamonds. It's really a I'll tell you, they've made a fortune on the soundtrack for those movies. They've been big sellers a long, a long time. They seem to hit really well on so many different things. I mean, there's just you know, like I said, like the the villains, the the women, the cars, the the gadgets. There's like so many different things that go into every movie that you just get so excited about and are like, damn, and like, and, and so memorable. I think uh, even uh, Tina Turner, I think, did GoldenEye. Yeah, they just have the pulse on a lot of really cool things. And then they would bring in good actors, too. Like I liked when they brought in John Cleese to be uh, Q. Q. been a magnet for talent. I think that uh, I always say I say that there are three things certain in life. There's death, taxes, and James Bond movies. 
I don't think we're ever not going to have James Bond movies because, frankly, it's a very powerful franchise. It doesn't require anything more than realizing that James Bond's a real person, not a superhero. I admire the superhero movies, but how many Iron Mans do we need? Do we need like six Iron Mans? I think Bond is kind of goes with the times. You know, when there was a worldwide shortage of oil in the 70s, they did the man with the golden gun. You know, they work with the times. They introduced the laser before anybody knew what a laser was. I mean, it's pretty uh, iconic when it's pointed at your privates and you're you're wondering if, if you're about to lose it all. And he, Bond turns to, to Goldfinger and says, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. That's pretty killer dialogue. That's great dialogue. I wanted to jump in and finish just so you knew I knew it, but <laughs> I wanted to let you finish. <laughs> cool. So, um, Moonraker, what do you feel about James Bond in space? Really bad idea. James Bond does not belong in space. It's just, well, you know, you know what happened? They, the Star Wars had already become a big smash. So when they were producing Moonraker a couple years later, they thought they'd add some space footage in of, you know, Bond going to the space station. And it just didn't work for me. It, was, it wasn't very well executed. This is pre-digital effects, so everything looks kind of clunky. Not a good idea. But Moonraker has some good things in, in it. It has some great music. thought Roger did a fairly good job. It's, an, again, a big, spectacular production worldwide. It goes to Venice. It goes to Los Angeles. It goes to um, all these places. has a kick-ass teaser with a skydiving sequence. Uh, it's got a lot going for it, but, you know, uh, not one of my favorites. How did you feel about View to a Kill, his swan song? The worst. I would put that at the very end of the line for Bond movies. I mean, starting with the opening ski chase, which they suddenly put under some Beach Boy foot, uh, Beach Boy soundtrack. It just didn't belong in that movie. It, it Roger was probably too old for that one, but he gave it a good try. Um, but the whole caper, it was kind of a ripoff of Goldfinger. As you recall, Goldfinger is obsessed with gold and wants to uh, steal gold from Fort Knox, or at least destroy the gold in Fort Knox. Max Zorin is a megalomaniac supervillain who wants to put the, um, he wants to have the world's monopoly on microchips. Now, I don't think anybody cares about microchips. It was not a really good source for a plot. But his plan was to destroy Silicon Valley. That was a little too outrageous for me. Not one of my favorite Bond movies, but once again, with some great John Barry music. When that, as bad as some of the Bond movies could get with some of their stupid storylines, uh, the music was always good. Dude, are there any stupid storylines up to this point that we haven't covered? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't like the man with a golden gun either. I thought again, it was uh, it was an interesting idea to turn Christopher Lee, who'd been in all those horror movies as Dracula and Frankenstein, to turn him into a suave killer named Scaramanga. But they got him to be so suave and cool that he lost his villainy. I found that it's hard to have a James Bond movie if your villain is so likable. And I thought that Christopher Lee was pretty likable. It was actually kind of cool. To see this actor who had done mostly horror to suddenly play this suave killer who's got a beautiful girlfriend in Maude Adams. He lives on this amazing beach in Thailand, but it didn't work for me. And uh, one of the great stunts in the whole series was ruined by a slide whistle sound effect that ruined the whole thing, which I thought was a mistake. I mean, they did a 360 jump with a car, 
which was designed by a computer and done by this amazing stunt team where the where Bond has to get across a river and he does a 360 jump. The car does a complete circle around and was ruined by that sound effect. But that that's it. There were some high points. Again, some great music from John Barry and then little Hervé Villachez as Knickknack, the little pint-sized villain, was just terrific. Who are your favorite villains up to this point? Because we have um, definitely have Jaws, Odd Job, Dr. No, Goldfinger. Blofeld. Uh, the Gert Frobe character from the Goldfinger movie, I thought, was one of the best because he he's a megalomaniac, but he's still a human being. He's not like out of a science fiction movie. He's just obsessed with gold. I thought he was terrific. Uh, I thought the three villains in From Russia with Love were great. Uh, Lada Lenya, Vladek Shabel, and of course, Robert Shaw. And we know Robert Shaw from Jaws. He played Quint. But Shaw is this blonde-pated villain. Uh, Grant is... Um, is great and from Russia Love. In fact, he's in one of the great fight scenes of all time in the cabinet, in the train compartment on the Orient Express uh, with James Bond. It's one of the most thrilling fights in the series. And uh, I like the villains um, later on, but I think the best ones for me were in the early Bond films. Blofeld is interesting. He's, he hasn't quite Done it for me, uh, although I thought the closest to a good Blofeld was Telly Savalas in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He's kind of an American Blofeld, although Blofeld's very European in the books. But I actually liked his performance a lot more than I've liked Christopher uh, Christoph Waltz's in the more recent Daniel Craig's. Uh, those of your listeners who saw Spectre, which was the last James Bond film, discovered that in the new storyline, James Bond and Blofeld are related. They're kind of foster brothers blasphemy it just didn't work for me but that's that's neither here nor there okay so now in the timeline if i recall as a young boy they're trying to get pierce bronson and like pierce bronson brosnan who was under contract to nbc was making that tv series remington steel couldn't get out of his contract so they decided that uh, they can't wait so they went with timothy dalton timothy dalton did two james bond movies then finally they got Pierce Brosnan back to play uh, Bond in his debut, which was a long delay, by the way. There were some issues with the studio. MGM went through uh, some hellacious times uh, as kind of a football being thrown between various financing parties, and they couldn't get any movies financed during that period. So the next James Bond movie doesn't come out till 1995. I don't remember which Timothy Dalton movie it is. He's, uh, he's, I know some people like him and think he's, oh, he's, he's a good version and... There was one of those movies, I can't remember which one it was, I was watching it like in a bar, and I'm like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Dalton's <laughs> first James Bond movie was supposed to be Pierce Brosnan's first James Bond movie, so it played to what they thought were Pierce's strengths, which was The Living Daylights. And that's another one of these Roger Moore-sized, big, epic, globe-trotting Bonds. The second Timothy Dalton movie, Licensed to Kill, was kind of played like a, a, a long Miami Vice episode. It's got a very dreary storyline. James Bond's friend Felix Leiter is mutilated by this drug kingpin named Franz Sanchez, played very well by Robert Davi. But the storyline of taking down this drug kingpin could have been a, a long Miami Vice episode. So I don't think it did Dalton's tenure as Bond very well. And then indeed, they decided to go with Pierce Brosnan for the next film. Were they going to go with Pierce regardless? Or, you know, once they could get him, they're 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 dumping Timothy Dalton regardless. 
Well, I, I think if the if the Dalton film License to Kill had done better, but I think that was just an ill-conceived Bond movie, so it didn't do very well, uh, at least in the, in terms of the normal Bond grosses. So yeah, they were ready to make a change. Timothy was very serious. I think he d- did his homework. I thought he was a good Bond movie, but I don't think they wrote to his strengths. And uh, also, I find Timothy, although he's a very good actor, when you put him next to Pierce Brosnan, he doesn't have that panache that I think Brosnan has. Brosnan's kind of, he's got that twinkle in his eye that Bond needs. I loved him as James Bond. He was he was awesome. So with, with GoldenEye, if I remember correctly, if memory serves, so there's it's now... Now about six years, like you said, since the previous one, and these these are these are now blockbusters again, right? I mean, he brings the serious cash back to the James Bond franchise. People are just excited in general about James Bond again. They are. I mean, people have been waiting for Pierce Brosnan to take on the Bond thing for years. So I think the combination of Pierce, they brought in a a marvelous director, a British director named Martin Campbell. And Campbell, uh, unlike Irvin Kirshner, Campbell is terrific with action. And I think that they just pulled out all the stops and uh, they gave some great villains. Sean Bean, who we know from so many films since, has played Boromir in the Lord of the Rings movies. He played Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. He's become one of our favorite uh, actors from uh, the United Kingdom. He played the renegade agent uh, Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. He's great. And I mentioned earlier Xenia Onatop, played by Fomka Johnson, who was also good. It was good. It was good. I think that it was a lot, a lot of fun and launched the series back into the stratosphere. She's also very well known for everyone listening. Uh, she was Jean Grey in the X-Men movies. Great in that, too. Also plays uh, uh, Liam Neeson's wife in those Taken movies. Exactly. So, okay. So, so give me, what are your feelings on Denise Richards? Is that world is not enough where she's Dr. Christmas? The Christmas Jones, which of course um, is responsible for one of the great lines at the end of the show. Denise Richards gets a few brick bats, but I thought she was terrific. I mean, she looks great. I thought getting her to play a nuclear scientist was a little bit of a stretch, but She's great. I know there's nothing wrong with that. You've got Sophie Marceau in that movie playing a very interesting character. Uh, the the movie's packed. It's actually my favorite Pierce Brosnan. I think it has all the all the bells and whistles and a very satisfying conclusion. I did not like the previous one. I did not like Tomorrow Never Dies. I thought it had the mo- another one of those ridiculous plots. You know, kind of. You know, a newspaper executive wants to start World War III to increase his circulation. I don't think so. <laughs> Seems reasonable to me. I don't know what you're saying. You're crazy, Steve. <laughs> they, were they, how, how many of these, how many books did uh, Ian Fleming write? I think, let's see, I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was 13, 11 novels and two collections of short stories. So there's not a lot of material. So they ran out of uh, titles years ago. Everything we see now is brand new. It's just... Sometimes they slap on a previous title. I mean, Casino Royale is probably the closest to the original book because it's still about a, a game of, of chance in, um, in Europe. But for the most part, the stories are very new. So, okay, so Pierce Bronson, what led to him only having four Bond films? Is it just that it took so long, he just kind of aged out of the role faster because it just took, took so long to get him to be Bond? Or were there other factors involved? That's a very good question. I think that I, I'm not quite sure what goes on behind the scenes when they're cussing. His, his last Bond movie, Die Another Day, did just fine in the box office. 
it's uh, it's another world globe trotter. And I thought in many ways it was great. This kind of fell apart in its last act. I guess they just decided that they wanted somebody new. You know, perhaps he was getting a little older, although he looked terrific. Daniel Craig kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody knew who Daniel Craig was. I mean, he'd been a, uh, in some movies, uh, in some dramas, but nothing that really stood out. Yet he came in and we disparaged him at first. That blonde Bond. Who's this guy? And after I saw Casino Royale, I shut up. I mean, he was terrific. I love Daniel Craig. He's, I love everything he's in. Um, but these, I, his take on James Bond, I think is just great. To me, it's it's kind of, without comparing it, like literally like watching him next to each other. I mean, just the memory of the coolness of Sean Connery. To me, Daniel Craig has that kind of thing. There's no kitsch like a Roger Moore or anything like that. I mean, he's like, he's this uh, good looking badass who's going to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and kill you. <laughs> here, here it is. We're in the, the, you know, he debuts in 2006. By then, there's a lot more competition in the marketplace. You got the Bourne films. You got the Mission Impossible films. You've got the car stunts of the Fast and the Furious films. You got later, you got the Kingsman series. There's a lot of stuff going on in film that's very competitive. And so they they went back to more of a gritty gritty style to make them favorably compared to those other films. Because if you watch a Bourne movie, you watch a Mission Impossible movie, when somebody gets punched in those movies, you feel it in the back row. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of gritty violence. And I think that going back to the lighthearted one-liners of the Roger Moore era would never have worked in today's audience. The, uh, the male audience, particularly the male audience that sees action movies in movie theaters, and remember when we used to go to movie theaters, they liked um, their action tough and gritty. So uh, who better than to convey that than uh, Daniel Craig, who is another one of these kind of gritty actors who sells his punches very well. In fact, I think uh, he, he's been hurt in a couple of the movies, so he gets into it so much. Yeah, he's great. I don't know that I loved... Spectre, but I the other ones I, I thought were great. I I feel like Quantum of Solace didn't get great reception, but I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought it was a great extension of Casino Royale and Skyfall. I thought was really good. Craig is great, whatever he's in, and he's in every scene. So the movies can't be total dogs, right? But I thought uh, Quantum of Solace fell down because they broke the cardinal rule that a Bond movie has to have a good villain. I thought Matthew Amalric, the French actor, he he was kind of a little too buttoned up for me. He's just kind of a businessman type. The next film, Skyfall, they bring in Javier Bardem Silva, who's a great villain. So when you have a great villain like that, I think you really kick some butt. And I thought Spectre, although I kind of liked it the first time I saw it, after a few viewings, I began to realize that it was low octane. It didn't, once again, not a great villain. Uh, I did not like Christoph Waltz in the role of his son's foster brother. And uh, the action was kind of uh, disappointing. I mean, considering all the money they spent. Uh, by the way, the new one, No Time to Die, I think it's going to be terrific because they they blew out all the stops. I have a feeling we're going to walk away from the Daniel Craig era on a very high note. Well, I hope so, because that, be, that would be amazing. He deserves that. He deserves that. I think he, he put a lot of good bond into James Bond. So very cool. Let's see. So, all right. So overall favorite, your favorite James Bond song. I would probably say that Goldfinger is for me since it was the first Bond movie I ever saw. And I played a lot on my car CD, you know, my car, uh, actually I don't play it on a CD player. That was long ago. Now I played on my phone. 
Uh, yeah, no, Goldfinger is one of my favorite. I love Thunderball. I like the theme from ca- uh, Casino Royale. I think that's a good theme. You know, there've been um, there there've been few, very few bad themes. You know, I, I like I like pretty much all of them. They they serve their movies very well, along with the title sequences. The title sequences have maintained the. Uh, the kind of fun, you know, that's another trope of the Bond movies, that they have these wonderful title sequences. Initially, it was Maurice Binder who filmed the nude girls in silhouettes, so you didn't see anything, but you got the feeling that they were nude. And then Daniel Kleinman has taken over that role since Casino Royale, and he's done some nice title sequences. Favorite side villain? I would have to say Odd Job also in Goldfinger, was just terrific with that bowler hat of his. He winked flings like a frisbee that can cut a person's head off. That's pretty, pretty cool. Um, another great villain, I would say, I like the villain in Casino Royale. I liked uh, Mads Mikkelsen. He played Le Chief. He's the one who drips blood out of his eye and he's playing cards, that great Texas Hold'em thing, which was changed from the book, obviously. The book written in the 50s was all about Baccarat, but uh, by 2006, they thought Texas Hold'em would be a good game. And uh, I, I like that. The, the, the poker game in uh, in Casino Royale is a huge set piece. It goes on for, I think, over an hour. And top two female innuendo names. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to go with Pussy Galore. I mean, she'd have to be there. And then uh, I think Lois Childs and Moonraker had another great one in Holly Goodhead. <laughs> awesome. Who's your favorite Bond girl? <laughs> My favorite Bond girl, Claudine Auger in Thunderball. And she played Domino. And she's just, uh, unfortunately, we lost her earlier this year. Uh, you don't think of Bond girls dying because they're so iconic. But Claudine Auger played Domino, the playgirl in Thunderball. And to this day, I think she's the most stunning woman in the series. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been... The Bond James Bond Retrospective with Stephen J. Rubin, author of the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, available at Amazon and anywhere good books are found. <laughs> it's a it's a really it's a great book. This is like your what version of this book are we on now? This is the fourth edition. It's my first Bond book in 17 years. It's in full color, a lot of photographs, over 400 photographs, every fact that you need to be a Bond expert, and some wonderful paintings by uh, Jeff Marshall, who's an East Coast artist, a wonderful artist, and Brian May, another wonderful artist. Uh, I'm very happy with the the way the book turned out. I'll put all the links in the show notes as well. But you mentioned, I know you do the James Bond today on Facebook. What's How can people follow you there? Uh, They go to the James Bond movie encyclopedia, and they'll see my postings uh, on Facebook. I also have a Facebook site, Steve Rubin, uh, which also posts those. I don't do it every day, but every day there's a a moment in James Bond history. They can see it online on Facebook. You're amazing. And I I wish we could probably spend a hundred million more hours talking about James Bond, but I think we did a good job kind of bundling it all up for everybody. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great time. Great time. Take care. I hope you all enjoyed that James Bond A to Z with Stephen J. Rubin. If you love James Bond, you got to check out his book, The James Bond Movie Encyclopedia. Get it at Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. But if you're a big James Bond fan, that's the book you got to have. Literally so much information in that book. It's incredible. And you know what else is incredible? It's time for the hashtag trend of the week on the Jeff DeWaskin show. That's right. Every week we find a hashtag that was played on hashtag roundup. Go to hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. 
download the app, play the hashtag games, and one day you may show up on the Jeff Dewoskin Show. That's right. So today's hashtag, keeping in theme with the show, hashtag bad James Bond pickup lines. We all know James Bond was quite the ladies' man, but here's some pickup lines that maybe he just shouldn't have used. All right, here we go. Hashtag bad James Bond pickup lines. Hey, babe, I'll have you screaming for more. Roger Moore. Hey, want to put your seven in between my double O's? All right, these are some really bad James Bond pickup lines. Hey, girl, I'll make you a double O if you know what I mean. Actually, I, I have no idea what that tweet means. Hey, girl, I'm a Bond in the streets and Goldfinger in the sheets. That would that would get me, I, I have to admit. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that one. I want to show you my double O seven face. Wait, wait. I want to. I can do that better. I want to show you my double O O seven face. I'm not sure it was better, but it was definitely an attempt at being better. I've got something for your eyes only, girl. <laughs> the world is not enough, but I am. I put the bond in bondage. Okay, so these these are admittedly some hashtag bad James Bond pickup lines, and here's the final one. The name is Bond. James Bond. Can I show you my gadgets? I swear the lady said it was a massager. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Hashtag Roundup, for bringing us Hashtag Bad James Bond pickup lines and Hashtag You're It, the weekly game on Hashtag Roundup that created that hashtag. Thank you very much. And here we are again at the end of another episode. Can't believe it. Can't believe this is the end of episode 32. How did we get to 32 episodes? I'll tell you how. All of you great listeners and fans out there, liking, subscribing, telling your friends, thank you so much. Can't thank you enough. If you're like, where can I subscribe on YouTube and get that book, the James Bond book? Go to the show notes. Go to jeffisfunny.com. Everything will be on the page for this episode, episode 32. And also, don't forget to join the mailing list. Please join the mailing list. I'm trying to build up a mailing list of 100 million people, and I'm 100 million short. Minus a few. So if you can help me out there, that'd be great. Until then, I will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>